When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If there's anything we've learned during this ongoing pandemic, it's that our connection to others can help us weather any storm. This is Chapter 199 of WCBS Author Talks. I'm Lisa Chernkovich, and this week we've got three books that explore just how important human relationships are, including a book that's actually about a viral pandemic. Picture it. 2018. You've got this great idea for a new novel. You spend months researching and writing it, tweaking it here and there. It's about a tight-knit group of doctor friends who all met in med school. They're on a girl's trip overseas when disaster strikes. An unknown and lethal new virus starts spreading around the world. Yep, it's the start of a pandemic. And then, right when you're ready to publish, a real-world pandemic strikes. Well, that's the situation author Kimmery Martin found herself in. We chatted about her new novel, Doctors and friends. So to start, let's get the question everyone wants to ask out of the way first. Did the COVID-19 pandemic inspire your story about a viral pandemic? Well, yes and no, mainly no. Um, I originally had the idea to write about an infectious disease doctor during a pandemic in 2018 when I was writing an article about the book I wanted to write next. And then I did um, sell the book to my publisher in 2019, which is also when I researched and drafted it. So by early 2020, I had a pretty complete first draft. (laughs) And yes, I do blame myself for, you know, bringing this upon us because it dawned on me right around the time that I was finishing it that it was, in fact, happening in real life. Um, So the idea and the construction predated COVID, I did revise it during the early parts of 2020. That had to be really surreal for you. Yeah, surreal is definitely the word I use the most. Uh, It was just so bizarre. I I feel like I had been living in my own personal pandemic for, you know, a year at least. (laughs) And then the real pandemic happened, and I had been crowdsourcing a big group of infectious disease doctors and epidemiologists and virologists and emergency medicine doctors. And I stayed in touch with these people throughout COVID. So I was getting a lot of real-time, pretty anguished communications from people um, who were literally on the front lines and experiencing this in a way that, you know, completely trumps fiction. Um, So it it was just really bizarre. I think that's one of the things that stuck out to me the most about this book is is the experiences, the observations of the 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 psychological toll that the pandemic in your book, but also the pandemic we all experienced together had on these first responders and and these doctors who were dealing with it in real time. Absolutely. Um I I put together a document kind of containing bits and pieces of various emails I received in the early parts of 2020, which was when everyone was 
basically bewildered because there were such bizarre systemic manifestations of COVID that didn't quite respond the way we expected them to. And it was overwhelming and there wasn't enough equipment and there wasn't enough protection and, you know, all of the, all of the things we now look back on and all know about. But at the time it was um, so intense. <laughs> it really was. And I, I feel like healthcare workers are heroes and they have endured way more than is really describable in a, in a quick interview over the last year and a half. Now, you mentioned that you, you went back and you revised some things. Did you add things that maybe, you know, popped up in the in the pandemic? We all went through uh, like experiences or, or things we started doing in order to make it feel a little bit more real or, or, or were there certain observations? Like what sort of things did, did you go back and tweak? Well, the biggest rewrite that I did um, involved changing two of the characters from more peripheral characters to point of view characters because after COVID, my publisher wasn't sure whether they should go forward with the publication of Doctors and Friends. And finally they decided yes, but my editor said, well, okay, we will have all lived through a pandemic by the time the book is released because publishing happens very slowly. And there's no way that people are going to read this book without applying the filter of their own experiences, of course. But while we will have all lived through a pandemic, we will not all have lived through a pandemic on the front lines. So instead of focusing mainly on the infectious disease doctor, can you also show the experiences of some other kinds of physicians and healthcare workers? So I changed two of the characters in the book to show their direct perspectives. One, one was an ER doctor in New York City and one was an OBGYN in San Diego. So they became point of view characters. And then I also added a few things um, <laughs> to more accurately reflect our reality, like Zoom scenes, because, you know, you can't <laughs> have a pandemic without video conferencing in your pajamas. And <laughs> I didn't realize that pre-pandemic. Um, but most of the storyline stayed basically the same. Um, and a lot of the stuff that's just basic epidemiology, like masking and contact tracing and, you know, um, testing reagents and all of that kind of stuff. That was already in there in the original draft. And you would have all been teaching us a lesson had we had we not lived through or are still living through the pandemic. Well, I did intend it as a cautionary tale. You know, it wasn't it wasn't extremely insightful because obviously we've had many, many pandemics in the past and we will continue to have them in the future. So it didn't take a great leap of imagination to know it was going to happen. I just certainly did not expect it to happen, you know, within months of me writing it. Well, and the other thing that struck me is that you definitely know this is a work of fiction because in your story, the majority of people around the world understand that you need to be vaccinated and there are certain things you have to do to mitigate risks. Yeah, I, it's definitely a much more utopian <laughs> presentation <laughs> Then our real life turned out to be, and I did not see that coming. We did talk about whether or not to change the societal and governmental response in the book afterward and decided not to, decided to leave it the way I had originally written it um, as kind of a what might have been scenario. Now, I will say in the book, um, the people have several advantages over us in real life, one of which is that well, this isn't really an advantage, but, but you get the point. The virus in the book is, has a higher lethality rate. And so 
people, when they are genuinely afraid that they're going to die, are much more willing to take disease mitigation strategies. And then the second thing in the book that um, the society had that we necessarily didn't have is um, a very scientifically literate president. So I, I had written the book with this young woman as uh, the president of the United States who has a scientific background and is very analytical and empathetic and um, reads a lot and interacts a lot with experts. And, and so um, because of that, there was a more coordinated and systemic response early on. I think we should be very lucky that you don't exactly or what you write doesn't exactly come true because the virus in your book, it's not a coronavirus, but it it, it packs a very big punch. Yeah, so it is an RNA virus, and I originally envisioned it as kind of a super flu because, you know, I read a lot about 1918, and then I decided to combine some of the pulmonary devastation that certain forms of influenza have with the hemorrhagic nature of Ebola and the contagiousness of measles. So I was trying to create this super virus, um, and I was, again, I was crowdsourcing this big group of infectious disease doctors and asking them, you know, what would be the literal worst characteristics of a virus that you can imagine? And then I did not use all of their suggestions because obviously I wanted my fictional people to be able to serve this thing, or at least most of them. Um, But I did come up with a pretty scary virus. I think, though, you know, the heart of the story really is about the relationships between the this group of women. They're all doctors. They all went through med school together. And you've written about some of them in your previous books. We've got to meet all of them in, in different areas of their lives and different focuses. And I guess it, it, it does say something about how important human connection is in a crisis. I love that you say that. Um, yes, to me, I think the story revolves around the concept of friendship as a fundamental human relationship. And that's usually what I write about because I find that very interesting. Your friends are the people that you pick and you love them, not because you have to love them, but because you do love them. And so the relationship between these women in the story goes back decades. They all went to medical school together um, and they are, you know, ride or die friends who are always there for one another when anything happens. And that kind of is based loosely on my own real-life group of medical school girlfriends because we are still very, very close. And um, I just, I love that relationship. I wanted to include some things in the book that weren't grim, that that were even funny at times or uplifting or poignant or sweet. And also, I love that these these women, the book opens, they're on this epic trip to Spain and, and disaster strikes. But it was nice to escape for a little while through the book to maybe, you know, go somewhere. A lot of us haven't been able to go just because we've been stuck at home for so long. Yes, for sure. And I did that in real life. I actually went to Spain and Morocco with my med school girlfriends when I was researching the book. So it wound up being kind of um, ironic. So I guess, you know, as we're coming to, to the end of another year, and I guess a lot of people thought we'd be way past COVID by now, What are you most looking forward to as we get into 2022? Oh, my gosh, everything. I think the thing I want the most is for my youngest child to have more freedom because she's really borne the brunt of it in our family. She's had to quarantine over and over again, and she was too young to get vaccinated until just recently, and she did the most virtual school of my kids. And um and, you know, I want her to be a kid and go have fun and, and have a normal existence again. And the same for 
my mother and everyone who has a less robust immune system. You know, I think a lot of people in my demographic don't feel very threatened by COVID, and we forget how impactful it is on on people who are at greater risk or who have greater limitations. I'm really looking forward to hopefully this becoming endemic and not such a threat. And your next book is not going to cause another disaster? (laughs) Yeah, I know. I'm going to write about world peace next. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've been talking to Kimmery Martin. The new book is Doctors and Friends. Thank you for your time today. Oh, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure talking with you. If you've listened to this podcast often enough, you may have realized I love libraries. I mean, what book lover does it? But my connection goes way back to the fourth grade when I volunteered to help a nun that ran our one room library. Seriously, I loved that old school card catalog with all those drawers. My favorite. There's just something magical about a place that can hold all those ideas and dreams and possibilities. And I know I'm not alone. Just ask author Melissa Payne. Actually, I did ask her when we talked about her latest novel, The Night of Many Endings. So I, for one, know I wouldn't mind having to spend a night in a library. But tell me, (laughs) what sparked your story of these five strangers who forced to hunker down in their local library during a snowstorm? Well, I love a library, too, and obviously grew up um, as that was one of my favorite places to go. Um, But this one came because I was wanting to explore what would happen if you put five people from completely different backgrounds together. Um, I believe that we don't ever really get to know one another until we listen to each other's stories. But how do we sit down and listen to each other's stories if we don't take the time to do that. And this, obviously, with the storm and in the library, we have some common interests around a library, um, kind of provided a great opportunity for stranding some characters there and then seeing what happened um, in the night without heat or light. And as you say, a large part of the story is these these different people from different walks of life, different ages, confronting their prejudices about certain people and learning to see the world through a different set of eyes. And it's tough for them And I guess that's only fair because it's so tough for us out in the real world, too, isn't it? It really is. And in some ways, is this completely realistic? I think in this situation, yes. In out in the real world, outside of an extraordinary circumstance, I wish it could be more so. I wish that would be my wish is that we could take more time here or there, maybe at the grocery store when we're in line and we just take one extra minute to ask somebody a question. Um, I wish it were a little bit more, but it it was um, gratifying to kind of watch it take place within the library as the writer. I know also, or I read that um, there a library that is home to like wayward manuscripts influenced your story as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, um, that was very fun, actually. Um, it was the library is called the Brodigan Library. It's actually in Vancouver, Washington. Um, it was inspired by a fictional library by American author Richard Brodigan. He wrote about a fic- this fictional library that was open all hours and accepted all manuscripts from um, anyone. And uh, so in reality, people were so inspired by the story, they started their own real Brodigan library. And it takes unpublished manuscripts from writers. 
And I absolutely loved that idea of a place that took all manuscripts, being a writer and knowing how difficult it is to get published. And sometimes you just have that story that's burning inside of you that maybe you don't want to necessarily formally publish, but it's important to you and you want to share it. I just think that was so beautiful. So it was inspired. That idea was inspired there. And the main character, Nora, had visited that library and was inspired by a uh, manuscript that she found there. You know, it's comforting to know that there there's a home for everything in like wayward manuscripts. But I guess also in your story, like that's what the library is for these people. It's a it's a home away from home and becomes this place where people are seeking literal refuge from a storm, but also from everything that's going on in their lives. Exactly. And I think we all need places like that. But libraries are unique. They're unique centers of community. They're unique places that provide knowledge and community and events and activities and connections. Um, and I, there was a librarian that said once that libraries are the last places that you don't have to believe in anything or buy anything to come in. And um, I think that's beautiful. And so I, they are unique places and I, they're places we should keep. I, I've heard of readers who say, oh, my, my local library closed after the pandemic. Um, and that's just tragic. So I just think they're unique and lovely spaces and um, really was perfect setting for this particular story. I love that that quote from that librarian. I'm going to try to remember that. <laughs> you also portray homelessness and addiction in such a real and poignant way. I really don't think anyone's going to be able to walk away from this book and, and not have a change of heart about what those particular members of society suffer from. How did you land on, on that part of your character's story? One of the things that is very important to me to do as a writer is to bring realism into my characters. I enjoy writing fiction, but I think that there is such beauty in life and in the very realistic aspects of life. Um, And I like to bring that out, whether it's in a character or a community. One of my books I wrote was on a a community that I wanted to do the same thing with. Um, As far as homelessness goes, I think it's just so easy to pretend that that doesn't affect us or pretend that people who are experiencing homelessness um, have made choices that we would never make. And I don't see it that way. Um, We're we're all one and the same. We just are on different paths. And I wanted to make Lewis very real. I wanted to show who he was before, how he developed into the person he was, and to show his own regrets, his own dreams. Um, his own family connections, I think, because that makes him the person that he is, and he is a person. And sometimes I think with people who are experiencing homelessness and and drug addiction, um, we kind of forget that. Were you a fan of those choose-your-own-adventure books when you were growing up? (laughs) Yes. Of course I was. Because for what, like, I, I totally, like, that's what comes to mind when I when I read your book. And, and also the title, too, is kind of evocative of it. Because it feels as if we have all these people and there's so many different ways they could have gone, and yet they all end up at the same conclusion in the end. That is so poignant, Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> Can I use this? Absolutely. Um, use it in the interviews yes. you have coming up after mine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, Yes, that's exactly how I see this. And we make a choice here that sends us on this path. Um, and actually, that that harkens to a um, one of the manuscripts that I found in that, that I know about in that library, the real life library, was written by a man named Albert Helsner, a very real person. And he was a chemical engineer, but was a philosopher by night and submitted 16 manuscripts to the Brodigan Library. 
And one of his was the one that inspired my character, Nora. Um, it was called October 6, 1990. And he looked at a baby born on this date and said, basically, his thought was, what happens to you? Where will you go from here? Um, who will you affect? And he really, truly believed that people affected one, their relationships affected their next relationship and their next relationship, like a choose your own adventure. And that was very inspirational to me. And it happens to be such a character, Nora, as well. Um, but that a whole idea of we choose things, but then how, when we come together, do those experiences and our choices affect those interactions we have at that moment? And that's precisely what this book is about. And is that in the end what you want readers to be able to take away and maybe view or, or live their own lives a little bit differently after reading this? I think the freedom of living your own life and not letting, you know, choices that we've made in the past define who we are today, that we can always become somebody different. We can always learn from each other. And learning from each other, if we could figure out how to do that a little bit more eloquently <laughs> as we move forward. And, and I include myself in that, too. I don't want to come off as a preachy kind of writer. Um, I often write these as my own form of, um, you know, how, how processing. And um, so my hope is that we can learn from characters and learn from stories. And these characters, they took the time to get to know each other. They had to, but they still did it. And they did it afterwards, too. And it changed them. Well, I can only hope people do read this book, do take that away and bring some of, you know, the not judging and, and, and supporting their local libraries as well into their lives. Melissa Payne, thank you for joining us today to talk about your new book, The Night of Many Endings. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. It was a, it was a pleasure to be here. In a day like this, a woman wakes up from an accident to find herself in a different life. She's no longer happily married, living in the country, and raising a daughter. Instead, she discovers she's an accomplished artist, living the life in Manhattan, and has never been a mother. What's happened? What's real? What's not? These are all questions that will run through your head as you read this latest novel from Kelly McNeil. She shared with us the inspiration behind her compelling story. This was one of those stories that evolved with me as I was writing, and so I was never quite sure which of this, which direction it was going to take. But I knew that I initially had this idea of a woman who woke up one day with, and, and is told her daughter never existed. That was a clear starting point. But when you have that kind of situation, there are a number of different ways that story can go, which was really intriguing to me. Um, and so, of course, one, the, the, main, the main idea behind it at first, or the main theory, is that she has suffered a traumatic brain injury or that she is having um, some sort of mental, uh, mental issues that she inherited from her mother. And so I was able to, to go down that path. But uh, as I continued researching, I started to wonder what, what were some other explanations that might be possible of course, there's the uh, psychological drama element of it. Maybe some, maybe the people around her are hiding something from her. So she has to explore that. But at the, t at the same time I was writing this book, coincidentally, I happened to be reading some, I happened to be reading a book by the physicist Brian Greene. He writes very compellingly about alternate possibilities in physics. And he's a theoretical physicist for anybody who, who might not know. And some of the quotes in his book started to really intrigue me. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe there's something here as well. 
And then also when I was going down the path of her being an artist, I was able to explore the artistic imagination. And maybe the whole thing is just in, maybe that's what it is, that very mysterious place where artists come up with their, with their ideas. And when you put all of that together, I was able to, to weave it in such a way that I realized there's a really big intersection between, between those things. And um, there's a, a way of braiding together science and spirituality in, in a way that made this a made Annie's path very interesting to explore. And as a reader, it was so much fun uh, learning about these things uh, as kind of, I guess, how you discovered them in your research and, and learning them along the way as you're reading the book, but also trying to play that game of, okay, what's really going on here? I'm going to try to guess it before the book ends. Mm-hmm. And that was obviously that, you know, that's, that's very intentional on my part. I, I want to take the reader on a journey with me that's very immersive and very much like the journey that Annie is actually going on herself because she has no idea. She's just looking for an explanation. Why is this happening to her and how does she process that? And so if, if one of us were to wake up in, in that very strange situation, we would probably take at face value what everybody was telling us, but it when your instinct is as powerful as Annie's is in this book, you would start to to pay attention to that in a more powerful way, which is one of the, the messages I was hoping to convey in the book. Um, you know, but listening to the voice that's inside you and trying to follow it. And um, so, yeah, I hope the reader go, goes on that journey with me. One of the other the things that, that struck me a lot about this book is how central uh, motherhood is to your story and and that that feeling and that gut feeling knowing you are a mom you've been a mom and this is central to who you are and there's no way you would ever forget that you went through something like you went through it was really fun for me to explore that because i am a mother i have two daughters and i i think that mother's intuition is very very powerful and and, um, you know, at the end of the day, we, we do the very best we can as, as mothers. And it's so much of it is based on instinct. And you just hope your instinct is a good one. But, yeah, that is it's a very powerful emotional core of, of a woman with children. And so I one of the goals of the book was to to explore the differences between or the contrast that happens when you have an inner voice telling you that something is is one way, but all of the evidence that's being placed in front of you is telling you something very different. And when you put that in the context of motherhood, that can be a very interesting um, story to explore. You've called this book uh, a love letter to a time and place. Can you tell us what that means? It really is. It is. Um, I There is a time in my life that I often revisit in my mind that I wish I could return to. And I think a lot, I think that's a universal thing. I think a lot of us have that, those, those, certain, those certain times in your life where you just, if you could close your eyes and, and time travel just for a moment to that, to that time, you would. And, um, and it also, there's also a place in my world that I, that I can no longer visit. And, and I took those two concepts and thought, wouldn't it be fun to, you know, have this opportunity to vicariously do that? And that's what Annie gets to do. She gets to go back to a time and a place in her in her life that she can, you know, that she misses so desperately. And in her world, she is able to revisit it in different ways. And 
And so that's why it's a love letter in my, in, in my, for me as a writer, it was a way of sort of therapeutically having the opportunity to do that. And, and I loved the essence of that feeling. So when we first meet Annie, she's living in a house in a country, and that's that's the place that you're talking about that she gets to return to. And when she wakes up after this accident, it turns out that she's living this glamorous, artistic city life. And we witness her struggling uh, about where she feels most at home. She says, you know, she calls herself a country and a city mouse, which I, I find very cute. Um, are mm-hmm. you are you like Annie at all in that way? Like the, this idea that you feel more at home in the country, but there are also times you yearn, you yearn to get to the city or vice versa. I am like that. I, you know, it, 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 that is something that I do have in common with, with Annie. I used to live in the Catskill mountains and I, I really loved that area of the world. And I grew up loving the country, but at the same time, I spend a, a lot of time in London and I actually live in South Florida and I do remember when I was living in the Catskills, we would frequently go from the Catskills into Manhattan. And it was fun to have that that difference be able to, you know, that it's such a sharp difference. And a lot of people, I mean, that's why people from Manhattan love to go to the Catskills. And there's something beautiful and wonderful and exciting about each of them. And I, I loved being able to put, to put Annie in those circumstances. And I think a lot of people maybe are like that, where they, there's different parts of our personalities. And we're not anybody, nobody's just one thing. And I think a little bit of, of having both of those in your world kind of expands the brain and the creative imagination in a way that works for me. And what's this about writing uh, letters to your future and past selves as a child? Oh, I'm so glad you picked up on that and the acknowledgments. That was a fun little kind of nugget to, for me to place in there. But I did do that. Um, and sometimes I still do from a, a very young age. I had this sense that it was a sense that time was a very fluid thing. And I interpreted it when I was growing up as, as being more circular in nature instead of linear which probably explains why I enjoy reading Brian Greene's work and other theoretical physicists from time to time, along with my women's fiction. But I often imagined myself as an adult and kind of knowing how each particular story ended and, and wishing so much that that grown-up version could reach back in time and give me some guidance. But I also sensed that the grown-up me might be out there wishing to revisit being a little kid, and it sort of went both ways. So I wrote her letters in my journals. I started journaling when I was very little. And so I would write her letters. And, um, yeah, I, I, in, I imagine that in some, I don't know, magical world, maybe she was actually getting to read them. And maybe she was reaching back in time and helping me out a little bit. It's a fun thing to explore. Having read the book and knowing I don't want to give anything away to readers, it makes so much sense that the story that you've written has evolved in the way it has, knowing that that's what you were like as a child. You know, people who have read the book say, you know, it's very clearly fiction, but um, the essence of my personality is in it. And if you want to know who I am as a person, there's a lot of it in this book, just kind of in the um, in the essence of the way that the story is told. And, and I think that's a really g- great compliment. And I think when authors can do that, we all write fiction. You know, we're not if, we, if we're writing a memoir, we say we're writing a memoir. But when we're writing fiction, if you can if you can just put the essence of who you are into that into that story, then I think that resonates really deeply with readers. And 
then we've done our job well. And, and it puts our kind of unique stamp on the literary world, I suppose, if we're having a, it's a bit of a lofty goal, but when we can accomplish it, it's a, it's a really rewarding thing. So is this book written for a, a future version of yourself or a past version of yourself? This is um, definitely, this book definitely represents a message that I would like to send to my younger self. It's, you know, the kind of message to say, hey, things are going to work out well and that there are possibilities out there for your life that are so far beyond your comprehension. And one of the messages I'm hoping that readers will get from the book, and um, this is what I'm hearing from readers. I, I get a lot of emails from people saying, you know, you've helped to open my eyes and find compassion for some of the choices that I've made in my own life. And you're helping me see that it's never too late to redirect. And um, yeah, so if I was able to send this book back to a former version of myself, I would say, look, it's okay that you don't always get it right. And that I will always have compassion. We do the best we can. And um, so that's what I meant when I said, yeah, it's kind of kind of a love letter. <laughs> I think that's something we all have to learn to live with. We all have regrets or maybe kick ourselves for a decision we made that might have set us down a different road. But I love the idea that it's never too late to make a change. It's not. And that's what that has been one of the most rewarding experiences of this book. I have to say when I started getting emails from people all over the world and these people telling me that I had touched their lives in some way with this book and opened their eyes to maybe a little bit of magic around them, or at the very least, just like I said, sort of helping them find compassion for the younger version of themselves that maybe didn't always get it right and saying, you know, but you're not a foregone conclusion, no matter what decade you're living in, no matter how old you are, that there are always opportunities to, to change your path. It just requires a little bit of a shift in perspective and the belief in but the possibility the universe has so many beautiful possibilities out there for you. It's just you need to be able to um, embrace the belief that it that they're out there. What does it feel like as a writer to get a letter like that or an email like that? It, it's pretty amazing, I have to say, and it is very. When they when I get that email, it makes me feel like I have done my job well. That I have written a story that has impacted in, in some small way, and it is an equal and reciprocal feeling because then they, by sending, they taking the time out of, out of their day to, you know, write an offer that they don't know and to say such kind words, it, they've then gifted me with something as well. And they've touched my life and it's this really kind of even exchange of kindness. And I think that's a really amazing thing that when two people can, two complete strangers can connect over something and, makes you feel a little bit more connected to the world and makes everybody feel a little less lonely, I think. We've been talking with Kelly McNeil. The latest book is A Day Like This. Kelly, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Believe it or not, it is time for our annual holiday giving guide, where we feature books for every type of reader on your list. That's coming up next time. Until then, stay off the naughty list and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.